You are listening to Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe. Thanks to Raya Eyewear for sponsoring this episode of Holding Court. I've been wearing Raya since last year. During the pandemic, I started teaching more lessons than ever before, especially outside. Raya are by far the best sunglasses for tennis I've ever used. Check them out at RayaEyewear.com. That's R-I-A Eyewear.com. And use the code PATRICK to get $20 off your first pair. They are total game changers. All right, everyone. A couple of months ago, I was lucky enough to get Andrea Yeager to agree to do a podcast with me. It was right around the time I was doing the Australian Open, which was early February, mid-February. And obviously, when this whole Naomi Osaka story uh, blew up during this French Open these past couple of weeks, I immediately thought of Andrea and what she went through in her life and her career and, and why she walked away from tennis at such a young age. Remember, as a teenager, she reached the finals of both Wimbledon and the French Open. So I decided to get Andrea back uh, on this podcast, do sort of an updated one. You will hear the long-form one I did a few months ago, which is more about her life story and, and uh, incredible what she's done since retiring from tennis at a very young age, helping kids with cancer and uh, doing so many things to help people throughout her entire life. And, in fact, that's what she wanted to do as a young tennis player but was denied the opportunity to do it. So I wanted to hear her take on what's going on with Naomi Osaka. Fascinating, emotional, smart, and also uh, hopefully some sort of action plan can come out of this that I would, would more than love to be a part of alongside Andrew. She obviously can uh, pull a lot more weight in this area based on her experience. So I think you will be as... Uh, tied into this as I was. It gets emotional at some point, Andrea. You can hear her passion about not only tennis, but this issue. And so it was great to have her come back on here uh, to talk about this story and, and a lot more. So that's coming up. And then after you hear from Andrea, well, I'll play you the podcast that we recorded a couple of months ago as well, right here on Holding Court. Based on the what's happened in the last week and a half, two weeks at the French Open. And I always had this plan to have Andrew's podcast come on during the French Open. But of course, little did I know uh, the things that would transpire in the last two weeks. And so Andrew has been kind enough to come on back with me right now, right in the middle of the French Open. And Andrew, I know you've done a couple of other um, podcasts and so on in the last couple of weeks. And I really wanted to get your thoughts, particularly on the Naomi Osaka issue, uh, and, and what was your reaction, number one, when you heard about it? And then as it transpired over the course of the you know, five, six days when, the, when she actually pulled out of the tournament. So anyway, thank you again for doing this again. But I really wanted to get your reaction to, to what's happened here in the last two weeks. Oh, absolutely. And I appreciate you, you bringing it up because it is an important topic with what's going on. And I was certainly surprised, like with the first initial um, Instagrams and, and information that came out from Naomi Osaka. I was surprised that that was the timing of it because, you know, it during the French Open. It's like right prior to her first match. And obviously that's going to have a reaction. And I, and she just didn't think of the reaction. She didn't think of, you know, the timing. She just was concerned and focused on one aspect of it and understood the magnitude of what happened thereafter, mm-hmm. um, which was very difficult. And it, it did put everyone in a, in a in a situation that um, was unlike, you know, any that they've had previously with that situation. So 
I, you know, it is heart-wrenching because for her to pull out, that's the part where, you know, for other players to be affected, players were winning their matches and it wasn't their tennis that was a conversation. It's like, what do you think about what happened with Naomi Osaka? And, and I do, um, I, I feel for all sides because I, I really do feel that sports is made up of five components. And, and I, I love players. I was a player, but I don't think players should be the very first. I mean, when you look at what puts together a tournament, there's fans, there's media, there's tournaments, there's sponsors, and there's players, and there's different eras. But when it comes to what happened in her situation, it was very different from her not feeling like doing media. It was, I'm having some difficulties. I'm having emotional difficulties. I'm in distress. I'm suffering. I'm hurting. And therefore, this is a solution for me to not have to deal with that aspect possibly and still be playing the tournament as well as I could be. That was her, uh, just her rationalization of it all. Obviously she would have done it differently. Uh, I, I can understand her plight in the sense, because I've been in situations where you don't have that level of communication. You don't have that safety barometer. You don't have a trust factor um, going on. And so therefore any conversation she would have had before, she might've, been in a sense bullied to make a decision that would have even worked out worse um so it, it was unfortunate it was heart-wrenching because you know here's someone that worked so hard to get to her accomplishments and done so much for social responsibility and then now you know the half of the population group you might have said way to go i i'm so glad you gave a voice to um mental health and you know mental health awareness but then there might be another half of the population said you know what what are you doing? Mm. <laughs> this is not the platform to do it on. And I just, you know, and I'm not comparing personalities, but I, I was the kind of person where you never want to cause, I never wanted to cause harm to anybody. And so when you're a professional athlete, most audiences think every professional athlete is out to kill, is out to win at no cost, is out to, you know, do everything, blood, sweat, and tears to conquer and be the, the victor and the champion. And not all of us are made that way. And that's where I think, um, and I get frustrated, is there was no, no system in place to help um, players to be able to understand what you're actually walking into as yeah, a professional that, yeah. athlete. And that's what I really want to get to with you, and I'm glad you, you finished on that because to me that's sort of what you were suggesting to me in, in the earlier podcast that we did. You know, there are a lot of issues and you felt – and you correct me if I'm wrong, but whether it was the WTA or the tennis establishment wasn't really looking out for your best interest. Obviously, they've got to look out for tennis's best interest, the tournaments, right. sponsorship, and we all know that's part of the game. But so, right. so what do you feel could be done that has to be done a differently and then be well, better yeah. moving forward? Absolutely. One, they need to listen to players. I mean, I've, I've been frustrated because at the age of 15, I went to the WTA and said, look, you don't have anyone like me on the circuit right now this young, and there's things that there's abusive power going on. I, there's not a safe environment. There's things I want to go help hospitals and schools and while we're traveling. So let's figure this out. I was so excited. They told me I was too young to have the conversation to even, and I couldn't run for the board because I was too young. And so my reply was, but I'm not young enough to be on the court at 1 a.m. and play tennis. I'm not young enough to make money for you guys, so why can't I have a voice? They said, we don't want to hear it. So that was basically the start of my situation. And then when I, I continued sharing issues that I thought was very problematic for what they were doing for an environment 
and again shut down. And then when I left the circuit, um, basically when I left the circuit, I was told by the number one player in the world and the WTA media director that I had to choose between playing tennis full time and that's it. And I could not help children or go help children full time. But I was not allowed to visit schools and hospitals and do my goodwill work while I was on their circuit because it made them look bad. They made, told me to make a choice. And they said, that's it. That, that's your decision. I was pulled into a room during the ch uh, championship and told by them that this is what's been decided. Make your decision. So yeah. that was my circumstance. So right. when you want to talk about, hey, we have all these programs in place, they didn't have a program in place there for a kid who wanted to play professional tennis, was two in the world, doing awesome, loved playing, loved fans, loved media. To this day, I mean, I think media is very important. You can't shut down media. You know, sports is made by media, and and that was my circumstance. Now, when I left the circuit, I explained to them again, look, the, the WTA, I know you guys don't care about the emotional health of people. I know you don't care about the bigger picture of their lives, but there's players that are suffering. There's players that are actually suicidal. Um, you're lucky that for whatever reason, um, I, I'm going to make it through. I will be okay, but not because you guys did anything to help me. Maybe it was the gift of joy or faith from God, but seriously, no one should have to go through what I went through. So I will help you start up a program. I will fund it 50%, but you guys have to do the other half and let's help these players. Let's make sure that they're doing okay emotionally because you guys don't care. They said no. So then I went back to them later on and after I saw Capriati and said, look, on TV, and said, look, this kid's suffering. She's probably going through the same things I've went through. Nobody's helping. Nobody understands the circumstances. We've got to do something. It's a responsibility. If you let kids in, if you let a minor in, the environment has to be safe. It has to have good communication. You have to care about their well-being, not just if they're winning matches or showing up for media. Then they said no. So that was a continual process. I went again two years ago and said, I will put together, I will get a, a group of players, like 12 players. I will get mental health professionals. You need people who are not making money from the industry that other players coming in can trust and say, hey, you know, she's not going to commentate them on that the next day. Let's help, you know, I have someone to go to. They understand what's going on. And again, it, it, they said, we have some play, systems in place. And I will tell you that there's some triggers that you will know, like Naomi Osaka, when she won the U.S. Open, we all saw her wink. She was crying mm -hmm. on that center court. She wasn't crying for tears of joy. She was crying because of the circumstances that happened in that match with Serena Williams. There was booing. There's a lot of things that were out of her control. And she has a, you know, I'm just saying this, I, I don't know it 100%, but I feel like she is a personality like me where you want to win, you want to do well, you want to succeed, but you don't want to do it while harming somebody else. Mm -hmm. You just don't. And I never, I mean, there was times in my tournaments, I would win a match and I'd walk in the locker room. I'd want to throw up because players were so upset. It's, you know, it's, you know, and it, it's, it's a difficult topic to have and nobody wants to hear it. They just don't, but it exists. I mean, when I played grand slams, my favorite thing was, out outside the locker room where the guys came out because they were so nice mm -hmm. and granted they weren't competing against me right. you know Bjorn Borg practiced with me on, on center court I think I brought that up in my podcast earlier but I'm not playing him the next round so I get that it's an individual sport but it doesn't have to be an individual sport where there's you know just there needs to be a certain sophistication now you asked about solutions 
in other industries, there's baselines that you are aware of. You don't hire an air traffic controller if you don't know his history, if you don't know his background, if you don't know what his mental state is at when he comes in. And so they're, they're taking in these youngsters. I mean, I turned pro at 14. I was two in the world at 16. I had a personality where if everybody could win at the end of the day, I would have been happy. Now, did I work super hard to succeed and be the best player I could be? Absolutely. But the fact of the matter, that's a different constitution than other players you're going to see. So you, when you look at my last 36 years, I've been helping those that are suffering, children with cancer, children in orphanages and hospitals. So if someone has that kind of personality to help others, like you've seen Naomi step up and help the world right. with social injustice, she's been a platform for that. When you see that happening in someone, you have to understand you're, diff- you're handling someone different than mm-hmm. let's hand her a, a, a card for a, a therapist. There's some things, if you understand um, – like uh, brain mechanisms and brain synergy and, and the communication within the brain. There's some therapy that if verbal communication will not heal triggers, they will not heal trauma. And so you have to have other methodologies to improve. And so there's, there's plenty of systems out there. And that was one of the things I was going to try to set up, even continuing my own children's cancer um, work. But there's like things like um, there's a thing called GAF. I don't know if you're familiar with that. It's like global assessment of functioning. They will do a baseline. They'll do assessment. And if someone's been through, um, you know, a trauma, if they've had difficulties, they'll do an assessment of where someone's emotional state is. And then they can understand, okay, wait a minute, what's going to trigger this person? What kind of mental health can we help them with? Because not everybody is the same statistic. We know this from American players. We have a lot more opportunity 30 years ago, 40 years ago. American tennis had huge opportunities because we had like your brother, we had, you know, John McEnroe out there, Jimmy Connors out there, Borg. We had Chris Everett, Martina, Billie Jean King. There's players out there that we could look up to and say, wait a minute, let's get on our public courts. We had opportunities to get on public courts, get rackets, get tennis balls, really get a system going in some other countries. It wasn't that easy. You see now like Asia and Europe are coming a lot stronger than they were 30, 40, 50 years ago in tennis. And so those diversities you have to take in consideration. I mean, players like Serena and Venus Williams, I don't know what it was like for them to be Mm African-American coming in on a circuit who didn't have African-American players. So you can't just do a standardized thing and say, well, look, we, we check in with the players and see if they're doing okay, and they tell us they're doing okay. It just, you have to do more. At this state of the game, now, should a player continue, like, should a player have the ability to say I'm not going to do press at all I don't think so I just don't I think media is part of making the sport and there's errors of sport that we all have to be grateful to in the past and you know like you're fortunate you're a a former player there's some media that is there that they're basically paying their food and utility bills from what they make covering the world because they have a passion for that sport Mm -hmm. and they're the reason that news gets to the fans and so they need to be respected and honored so um, the circumstance of how it was handled, I feel like Naomi didn't have the ability to have the communication she needed. And the, the system was just still looking at a baseline that had no information other than, oh, look, they showed up. They're well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? I mean, they physically can run around on a tennis court. That's okay. 
the fact of the matter that you have minors on a circuit could have, should have completely changed the system in place from the second you had a minor that was allowed on the circuit. And, and that never happened. Never happened with me. I mean, I'm working with legislation for other people. So certain athletes have, um, and we're working with Olympians and I'm looking with teams that we're actually putting laws in place to help minors because there is no, they don't look at it. Minors in acting have more support than minors in sports. And that's tough. When you're in a billion dollar industry of sports, you're going to have problems. Um, but I, yeah, so I just think now, I mean, we're looking at a situation where everything's blown up and it's almost fallen on Naomi heavier than it was mm -hmm. even then before. Well, I'll tell and, you, Andrew, my mind is racing because of all the uh, incredible things you brought up and, and talked about already. By the way, my wife's an actress and a singer and, and they have what they call them wranglers. The wranglers are the people that are yes. hired by this by the studio yep. or the TV or the Broadway show to take care of the mind. Literally, that's their only job to look yep, out for exactly. the minors. Now, here's here's what I have for you, because um, first thing I thought of is when you talked about uh, I, I wish that you could have been playing now in this era of social media, because I feel like you would have probably played tennis for another 10 years and you probably would have been able to do what you were given the choice that you had to choose, you know, to help people. I think I think now because of your strength of character and, and your mindset that you would have been able to figure it out yourself. Now, let's fast forward, though, to where we are now. And by the way, I had uh, one of the things I've been doing during this pandemic is teaching a lot more tennis one of the people i teach tennis to is a, a, a gentleman in his 70s who happens to be the head of psych clinical psychiatry at columbia so when he heard of in fact i was on the court with him when i heard about the osaka story and, and sort of my immediate re reaction was oh i mean she's got to you know do the press she's got to do this and he immediately said no no this is a this is an issue like this is a much yeah. bigger problem and so i had him on one of my podcasts and it was so illuminating to me and i think to the listeners to hear from him and 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 what you're saying is so true because here's a professional saying wait a second i've dealt with a lot of famous athletes and whether or not they're incredibly successful or not when they reach out in a way that Naomi Osaka did or Michael Phelps did, you know, his depression and so on. That means there's a, there's a serious problem there. It's not something, yeah. you know, because the Grand Slams and released a statement, you know, threatening Naomi. She's got to play by the rules. We could disqualify her, which to me was so out of line. And it's sort of what forced her to inevitably withdraw from the tournament. So when you look at what could happen now, I agree with you. My coach at Stanford, Dick Gould, used to say, I treat everyone fairly but not necessarily the same. And I think that's what tennis and the establishment has to look forward to do as opposed to just saying, oh, let's like push this aside. And you know what You know what could happen? Let's hope it doesn't happen. Naomi Osaka could become another Andrea Yeager. She could say, you know, screw it. This isn't worth it. It's not worth my mental health. I'm out of here. I'm not going to play tennis anymore. And nobody wants to see that happen. No, I mean, in my case, I wasn't even given the – I had a choice between – uh, basically, I, I visited a school. I was helping cluster suicides at White Plains High School. It was on my time off. It, someone ran an article. I never told media. Well, they found out, and I had been doing stuff for three years. They never wanted to start a charity. Now, can you imagine now not having a charity in sports? Mm -hmm. They right. never wanted to start a program. So I was told you could play on our tour if you only play tennis and quit helping children because you're making us look bad. Crazy. So yeah. that's not even like it, – it's insanity. My career – so – Basically, I left that room. I walked to the elevator, and I'm like, okay, God, you decide. My commercial, one of my commercials just aired during the Oscars. 
Um, I was, you know, getting the semis and finals of the Grand Slams. I was winning matches easily and, and having, I mean, I love tennis. I, I still love tennis. So it, it just destroyed the spirit of everything mm. I had done growing up as a kid. And I walked to the elevator and I said to God, okay, you decide because I have contracts, I have obligations, I have responsibilities. Do I help kids full time or do I stay on the circuit and never help a child while I'm here? Mm. So it's like, how do you do that? And I was still a teenager at that point, you know? So I'm like, so three months later, I went out on the French Open. I was up 5-0 in the first set. My shoulder popped. Mm -hmm. And it was like, I knew, okay, God's decided I'm going to help kids full time. But the fact of the matter, when you push someone so hard by an abuse of power Mm. and their mental state is fatigued and traumatized, physical ailments will come. And then other issues like depression, um, there's so many other issues that were happening for me if I was on that circuit and I saw what happened to Naomi first of all she would have had a whole team in place everybody would coming in you have to have somebody like what your coach at Stanford and I know Stanford well because my sister went there and and Mm. the school it's amazing and you you can't treat everyone equally if I'm dealing with children with cancer some might have osteosarcoma which is a bone cancer another might have leukemia another might have rhabdosarcoma there, there's so many different types of cancer i can't treat them all in a, the same because one might have to be in a wheelchair because they lost their leg another one can walk so you, you everyone has to so it's in a sense and the other thing is top players do 10 hundred a thousand times more media than other players right they do it after tournaments they do it during tournaments they do it with sponsorships they do it with commercials they are constantly reaching out um, social media has given a mechanism now for, for players to reach, but you, you can't isolate the people that have loved the sport so much that they work in sports, like they work in media. And I know tournaments work hard and, and fans deserve to hear from their players too, not just from their own little social media channels. But the fact of the matter is, is this is a life now. And it's a life that has been so traumatized that she had to leave. And, and she will always have people now that are like, why didn't you just suck it up? You know, mm. why didn't you, you're making x amount of millions of right. dollars a year why it, and it's they don't understand what's happening behind the scene and for me sports and women's tennis i wanted it to succeed and continue and and I'm, i wasn't going to be the person to bring it down because of the stories i had from my circuit i just thought that they would improve going forward they didn't with capriati they didn't with a lot of other players i've mentioned that too and they're not doing it with her with naomi and and that is an issue when you like if she quit tennis right now because she wanted to go to social issues, she has done more for the world for social responsibility issues than, than all of us combined. Nothing against what Federer and Nadal and anyone else has done before, but she took a stand when it was a difficult place to stand. Mm. You know, that, that was something that she did on her own. And it's not easy to do that. She's not an extrovert. She's not someone that feels comfortable in the limelight or feels comfortable having you see her in press conferences. She's not as, you know, personality driven by her energy and enthusiasm for communication. That's not her forte. So you work with it. You just have to work with it. And that's what I was trying. I've been trying to get the WTA to do this since I'm 15, where it's like, you guys, I'm, I'm not like your average kid here, you know? And then they said, hey, you're not old enough to run for the board. You're not old enough, but you're old enough to be on the circuit. So it's, you know, and, and so that's my thing. Keep them safe. But you have to keep your athletes and your minor safe physically, mentally, 
And there is, you know, other components that come within that. And if you don't know how to do that, get the people that have been there before, hire them, bring them in, bring in the professionals. And at least you're doing everything you can because they're not like right now, this kid is isolated. Now, if she comes back to Wimbledon, she's not a kid, she's 23, but she comes back to Wimbledon, all the focus again is going to be on her. And it's just, there needed to be a different support when she came in the circuit and there needed to be completely different. She was already in a red zone after that U.S. Open. She's crying on, on stadium for everyone, not because she's happy. And now she just admitted she went through depression after that. I was traumatized beating players. I had one player that just proceeded to get drunk in the locker room after I beat her my second tournament after I um, won over her. And I never could play against her hard again. I never tried again ever against her because I thought I caused harm. Now she, she had to get drunk in the locker room. <laughs> the media director helped her get the alcohol in the locker room. I'm 14 years old and they're upset. And I'm like, oh no, I've caused this. If I didn't win, this person wouldn't be upset trying you yeah. know, to get drunk in a locker room. So uh, you, can't, you can't expect everyone to be at the same maturity level and the same DNA. We, we're not built like that. That's why sports is so fantastic. You see different personalities. But, yeah, it's frustrating. It's, it's, it's really frustrating. And, and, come on, for as many Naomi Osaka's that are actually having a voice for people to listen to, how many haven't been heard? Right. And so there's so much, there's, there's so much ability. Like I've loved tennis since I've been a kid and picked up a racket at age eight. There's amazingly great people in tennis. The, they can put together something to go, let's figure this out. You know? Yeah. We've, we've exhausted from COVID. We're trying to, yeah, we're trying to figure out, keep the game going, but you know what? You, you, you getting, you getting choked up, Andrea, getting, got me choked up. Okay. Listening to you because I hear, the hurt in your voice, I hear, but also hear the love you have for the game and, and most importantly for helping, to trying to help people. And uh, here's what I think we should do. I think is that w- you and I, and I'm going to get Dr. Lieberman, his name is Dr. Jeffrey Lieberman, and he's tried to help a lot of um, athletes, some of whom you know, you would know, um, with the, this exact issue. And I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to connect the three of us and because I can see, and, and, and when I did my podcast just a couple of days ago, my solo podcast, just about, you know, the Fetter issue and just the French Open in general, I'm thinking, wow, you know, it seems like they, you know, for a couple of days I was getting inundated with, with requests, you know, to go on the news and to talk about the Osaka story. And now it's crickets. And my worry, my concern yeah. is what you just said. It, this gets pushed aside. Oh, it's, you know, she's just another player. You know, she's a, I mean, she's a great player, but she's just a player. And that I think would be a huge mistake. So how about we 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 join forces and we try to you know we try to get something changed? I'm in. I'm I'm absolutely in. I've seen too many souls lost, hearts broken, and careers ended for for no other reason than you know some of it's ignorance, but some of it is unaware. You know, being unaware. And now with people recognizing there's there's this issue, you have to raise the level. You've seen tennis raise their level. Let's raise this level. Let's get it together. There's too many great minds that there's a way to get this done and, you know, and, and, and make this be something of, of hope and inspiration and, and have everybody have that. Everyone's going to have a different platform, but it's, you have an equality to it, but you have the ability to walk into a place and not become less of a person. I mean, that's not what professional tennis is supposed to be any sports anywhere. 
life isn't supposed to be that. And, and we should, you know, I'm in. So yes, I'm in. <laughs> all right. We're all in Andrea Yeager. I mean, uh, absolutely inspiring yet again. And I will be in touch. I will get us on the phone with uh, Dr. Lieberman and, um, let's see what we can do. And thank you for absolutely. doing this at the last minute. And, uh, we got about, let's see, from the, for the earlier podcast, this one, this is well over an hour with Andrea Yeager, and we could do a couple more hours in our sleep, by the way. Uh, <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for being so awesome. Well, okay, Andrea. Love you and uh, take care. And you know what I say to you is thank you for caring as much as you do. All right. Thanks. Thank you. All right. Take Check care, Andrea. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. This episode is being brought to you by Raya Eyewear. Over the last few years, a growing concern of mine has been the long-term effects of overexposure to UV rays from my extended time on court in the sun, you know, following that little yellow ball all over the globe. Well, I was also just tired of squinting on sunny days, but my fear was always that wearing sunglasses to protect my eyes would affect the way I hit the ball. Well, last year, especially during the pandemic last summer, I came across Raya, and I'm so, so glad that I did. Raya is changing the way tennis players see the game and protect their most important performance asset, their vision. All of their eyewear is handcrafted in Italy and built specifically to enhance ball contrast and provide protection from those harmful UV rays. There's no question that they help me see the ball better, they relax my eyes in the sun, and they've become an essential part of my tennis experience. Check them out at RiaEyewear.com. That's R-I-A-Eyewear.com. Use the code PATRICK to get $20 off your first pair. I promise you will love these sunglasses. Well, that was pretty gosh darn emotional for, uh, for me, and I hope uh, for you for good reasons, because you can hear the passion in Andrea's voice. You could hear her voice cracking at a couple of times throughout this interview, talking about uh, obviously remembering her, her situation, what happened, and also her empathy and her desire to want to help somebody like a Naomi Osaka and, and plenty of others, countless others, in fact, so now we go to the podcast I did with her from a few months ago. I think you'll be as riveted to this one as you were with this updated one we just did. Thank you so much to Andrea Yeager for giving me all this time here on Holding Court. Man, I go way, way back with this uh, lady. We're just about the same age. And uh, I think my greatest memory of Andrea Yeager, uh, forgetting about the fact that she got to two major finals, was selling T-shirts together at the U.S. Open. Andrew, tell me your memories of that, because I think about that all the time. I mean, your story is one of the most amazing stories in tennis and then really more what you've done since you stopped playing tennis. But tell me your memories of selling T-shirts with me at the U.S. Open. Oh, my gosh. That's, what a memory. I, uh, I certainly have had a lot of great opportunities because, as you know, tennis is lifelong, regardless of what level you ever get to in life. I mean, I was number two in the world at age 16. But the memories and, and the paths that get to be grown and fulfilled in tennis is pretty extraordinary. And so in running my Children's Cancer Foundation, I had the opportunity to sell T-shirts at different tournaments. And the U.S. Open was one of them, um, one of them. I'm sure you remember when, um, you know, back at the Miami Open, mm-hmm. and I, it was at the ATP player party that Kim Hall allowed me to also sell T-shirts. And so all the proceeds would go to help children with cancer. So at the U.S. Open, 
Nike uh, made sure that we would have a little section so we could be able to sell that and just help the foundation get awareness out there for Little Star and, and make a difference. And and it's, you know, it's, it's something where I think anyone who, who loves the game of tennis, you have memories that are very distinct. I remember when I used to play and you used to come and watch John. And, and I remember you just as a, a little, I mean, we were both little, we were teenagers, mm-hmm. but I happened to be on the pro circuit at the time. And, and then Chris Everett's younger sister, Claire Everett, and us three would be hanging out at these booths. And you sold, I think, programs when you're at the U.S. Open. Yeah, Is that I sold, right? Yeah, I sold programs for a while. I actually, um, what, what, what happened with the T-shirt is that my brother was on a, he used to do an exhibition tour called McEnroe Over America. So he used to go to all the uh, like small cities and he would play either Vitas Garolitis or Guillermo Villas and he would play like one-nighters, we called them. So he had these T-shirts uh, made, McEnroe over, over America. So we would sell them, he would sell them, and his, uh, his, his manager, his crazy manager at the time was a guy named Steve Corey who's passed, passed away years ago. So he used to be able to get them sold at the U.S. Open. So I would go out and sell them. And so I don't know who I had more of a crush on, you <laughs> Or Claire ever, because both of you. Yeah, it was definitely Claire because. No, no, you were right up there because you come out there in your pigtails, and meanwhile you're playing like in the U.S. Open, and I'm like this 15 year old, and I'm like got this girl coming out, and she's gonna play in like the quarterfinals, and she's selling T-shirts with me. I mean, this was unbelievable. (laughs) It was it was so funny because every Claire and I virtually dictated our whole day around passing your boots because we wanted to talk to you. And it was like, it was so funny. And, and she, oh my gosh, she had the biggest crush on you. I did as well. But my junior was my big thing because um, he was on the pro circuit and we played mixed doubles together. And you, got, and you guys it, won the French Open together, right? In mixed doubles. We won the French Open, yeah. yes. I think the youngest champions before that was um, John, John McEnroe and Mary Carrillo. Mm-hmm. And they held a torch for so long. And, and it's just, you know, there's there are, there's so many memories my some of my best memories are off court than on court i mean i obviously had some great ones on court but oh yes claire and i definitely dictated our whole schedule at the US <laughs> I, mean, I was See? playing i was late to practice one day because we had to make sure we passed your booth and so you only say 40 years later the truth comes out you know, maybe 42 <laughs> years later but amazing but i want to ask you andrew because uh i mean obviously what you've done in your post tennis career has been amazing starting your own foundation and helping so many kids which you've done for for so many years but I want to ask you about how you got started in tennis and uh, uh, you know why was it what made you get into tennis obviously you, you became an amazing player at such a young age but why tennis and how did it happen well I I had a different type of trajectory than a lot of pro tennis players and I think this might help some parents or people out there that are coaches that are teaching young kids and that kids just don't grasp the game right away because I was not fluid or successful in tennis at the beginning at all. My dad, I started at the age of eight and the only reason my parents let me start playing tennis is I I received a badminton set for my birthday and I was trying to do it by myself out in the front yard, you know, hitting it back and forth. And Mm -hmm. finally, my parents, because both my parents play tennis. My dad learned how to play tennis from watching on TV. Mm-hmm. He learned it from watching Borg Connors and, and John, obviously John McEnroe, your brother. And so he taught my mom tennis. They learned how to play. They go to the local parks. They taught my older sister, Susie, who ended up going to Stanford on a tennis scholarship. Yeah, she was an, was an excellent herself. player, really good player. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so 
I just, but they never wanted me to pull, like they'd go and play and Susie and I would sit on the sidelines and go to the park or, you know, play with, you know, climb a tree or something like that. They didn't have us come on the court with them and play. So it wasn't as if they had that dream in their eye for us to be players. So finally, my mom said to my dad, you know, she's trying to play badminton out there by herself. Why don't you just <laughs> toss her a few tennis balls? And right. so my dad took a, a bucket and I remember him distinctly saying, we don't want to go to a public court with you because I don't want to waste somebody else waiting for a court because you don't know how to hit a ball yet. I, I'd rather have the people who know how to play tennis be on the court. So you're going to learn how to play in the driveway. Mm. And I was like, awesome. So he tossed me balls in the driveway and I missed every single one. I mean, mm. we're talking for hours. Every single one missed them. So then the next day, missed them again. Then like the third day, <laughs> I, I didn't. Strike. I didn't hit one. Did you keep? Finally, did you keep? Did you keep asking him to play, or was it? Was he just like, "Come on, oh, Andrew, we're going to go out and, and try it again," or was it you that wanted? Well, no, to no, no. He was. He definitely wanted to stop. He, he looked at me and, and he's like, "Okay, let's go in now." And and I'd be like, "Okay." So we go in, and then the third day, I hit one, and and I it just it went over the road and into the the neighbor's yard, mm. and I was so excited, and the whole time, like, I mean, you would have thought I hit a home run every time I swung and missed, it was just so fun swinging a racket, like, to me, it was like, wee, and when I finally hit it, my dad was, uh, like, I mean, every time we went in before, my mom said, um, he goes, you know, she's never going to make it, I don't think this is her sport, mm -hmm. and, and she said, oh, you know, well, she looks like she's having fun anyway, why don't you just keep doing it, and that was only the reason he kept doing it, it was just I mean, you know how this is um, with parents, the sheer love a parent has for their child to do something with joy. It mm -hmm. was, that was the motive. It wasn't, oh my gosh, my daughter can be a professional tennis right. player, be number one in the world and, and get millions of dollars. It was, okay, well, it looks like she's having fun. I'm the father and the, you know, I'll, I'll go out there again. And so finally, when I could hit consistently in the driveway, he took me to a tennis court. Mm -hmm. And then at, um, I remember... One time we were waiting for a court and it was, we were sitting on the grass and he goes, come on, let's hit a few on the grass. And I said, dad, let's just wait for the court to open. And he said to me, well, you never know. One day you might play at Wimbledon. Mm. And I didn't know what Wimbledon was. It, you know, I had no idea. Like there, there wasn't really that kind of vision of tennis is, is my end all and is everything. And then when I was age nine, well, I remember going to play a junior tournament mm -hmm. and my sister and my dad were teaching me how to keep score in the car because I had no idea how to keep score. And your sister mom, and your sister had already been playing in some – because she's a couple years older, right? Yeah, she's three years older. So right. she was playing some junior tournaments. She was playing in the same tournament, just an age group up. I was okay. like in the 12 and under. She was in the 14 and under. Right. And my mom stayed home because she was too nervous. She, she didn't think – she thought it was too early for me to be playing a tournament. I was age nine. Uh -huh. So I went out there. I won every single match, won the tournament, and every time I switched sides, I would like wave to my sister and my dad, like, "Hey, you know." <laughs> it, it was it was not that like now when you see kids, they're fierce. Their training is fierce. Right. They're the way they attack. Uh, um, you know, I think it's you know probably you, you had the same upbringing, and Giants been a big proponent of this, and it's about playing other sports, having mm -hmm. a balanced life because when you're very young, that's important. So for me, I played on a, a boys traveling soccer team when I was a kid. And so I did that as much as I played mm. junior tennis tournaments. And so that to me really meant something. But at age nine, I won the whole tournament at age. I started winning every single junior tournament to the point where 
I was getting bored winning. It was, you know, there was no challenges. This so was, my dad this, had this, to, this was in this was in the Chicago area, right, where you grew up. Right, and tennis Illinois. was right. top. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was our junior tennis. We had some amazing kids coming out of our area and nationally. So basically, what happened is my dad put put me in higher age groups, and I started winning those age groups. So at age thirteen, I was winning eighteen and under, twenty one and under college mm. tournaments. Wow! And and so it's. And I was, you know, everyone has a different personality. If, if parents see, you know, if they're listening and they're, they're thinking, well, my child doesn't have the desire to really put the work in. Well, maybe it's because what they're putting the work in, they haven't found that sense of wonderment with it. Or maybe they, their talent is somewhere else. But, you know, sometimes sticking with them and figuring out how they can train to their highest ability is, can be productive on both sides. So what my father did is he saw me winning so easily. So he, he found things that I like to do and he would put them out there on the table. So he would say, look, we're going to another tournament. If you win this tournament and you win some of the sets, six Oh, six Oh, we can go bowling at the end of the tournament. Mm-hmm. And so that to me, that was interesting. That was a challenge. And then other matches, I, mean, I actually played some matches where he said, if you win a golden set, we'll go to the zoo. And a golden set means you don't even lose a point. Right. No wonder you were and so then, consistent. You were known for your consistency. Now I know why. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, there was, and when he started training in his practices, he would, everyone I practiced with, he would start giving them 30 love each game or mm-hmm. 40 love each game. And he would say, okay, now, now try to win. And it was interesting because when I went in pro tennis, so much of that was ingrained. So when I played every single game in pro tennis, I would be like, okay, win the first two points, no matter what, just get the first two points. Right. Cause I was so used to playing practice matches where I was down 30 love and down 40 love um, on the score. But it was just, you know, junior tennis was to me, it, it was the greatest experience ever in terms of sports because I traveled a lot with my sister. Mm-hmm. We stayed in housing. We played, we ended up playing doubles together a lot. And then we got to go to play internationally and, you know, those, ex- those experiences are just, you can't, you can't even write a movie script on some of the things we had to experience. Like we went to Africa at age 13, I was 13 right. and she was 16. And, you know, I ended up winning, I won that junior tournament. And then I remember my parents didn't have enough money to go. So we stayed at housing. And I remember the person at the housing called my father and said, you know, your your both your daughters are very talented. Um, your youngest daughter just won the junior tournament. I don't even think she sweated in the whole tournament. Mm-hmm. And so we have a pro tournament next week. Would you like us to give her a wild card because we really want her to play in our pro tournament? Um, and you were, thir- you, were dad, you were thirteen at the time. I was thirteen. 13. And so my dad said, "Well, because well, we'd have to stay an extra week in South Africa." And so my dad said, "Well, why are you asking me?" ask her because I was sitting right there. Mm-hmm. So I heard him on the other line of the phone. Uh-huh. And so the, the gentleman goes, Andrew, would you like to play in our pro tournament next week? And I said to my sister who was sitting there too. And I said, well, if I did, could my sister and I go on a, su- a safari while we waited <laughs> for the tournament to start? Right. And the, the gentleman, he said, yes. So he got back on the phone and said, she said, yes, if we can take her on a safari. So my dad said, can you take her on a safari with her sister? And he said, of course. So I played the pro tournament, won the pro tournament, went on the safari. And so that was, it was, it was kind of a trajectory that you just, you can't even imagine in this day and age anymore. Um, After that, 
I played a Las Vegas pro tournament where anybody could get in pre-qualifying. And I got through the pre-qualifying, got through the qualifying, got through the main draw and won the tournament. And it was a pro tournament. So it was, I think I came in on the rankings at like, I mean, I came in really high. My next, my second pro tournament as a pro, I got to the semis. Mm -hmm. So it just was, um, you weren't, you weren't exactly having to grind it out on like the satellite tour, you know, it was just like one couple tournaments and you're already in the top 50 or something like that. Yeah. It would be like with Coco Goff where like, um, if she got a wild card, like you get a wild card into the qualifying. I think she got a wild card into the qualifying at Wimbledon. If she won, got through the whole qualifying and then got through the main draw and then won the tournament. Won the, right. And and so that's what started happening with me. I would be like I in, I was in South Africa. They gave me that wild card to get in the, the main draw of the tournament. I won the tournament. And then the other tournament, I ended up winning 13 matches straight to win that pro tournament in Las Vegas. And I mean, what kid in Las Vegas isn't having the time of their life anyway? <laughs> right, going all the shows. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like Stevie and I, we, we stayed in housing. And, and so for me, junior tennis and my first experiences in pro tournaments were like a dream. It was like having Disney World every single day. And that, that's why I ended up turning pro. It wasn't because my parents pushed me. It wasn't because my management group came and said, okay, look, we'll sign you for all these millions of dollars you know, just do this and you'll be set for life. It was my parents couldn't find anything to challenge me anymore in juniors or collegiate tennis. And then they were paying all this money for us to travel. It wasn't mm-hmm. like today, if you're really great, the USDA will help you. They'll give you a coach. They'll give you, you know, they'll fund your, your ability. Back then, we couldn't fund, you know, anything. I was fortunate. Wilson was based in Chicago. They gave us tennis rackets when I started winning junior tournaments. And then when I won Orange Bowl one year, I think I won the 18 and under at age 13, um, Marty Mulligan came to us with Gila and right. gave us clothes. And that was it. I mean, we thought we made it because my parents didn't have to pay for rackets or clothes anymore. So that's, you know, so we, we did the grind, but I guess, you know, because of my success and be able to succeed in a way that, you know, really hasn't you don't see very many people come into pro tennis as a junior and just win the tournament. Yeah. So that's obviously a lot more difficult now. I mean, you had Capriati and others that came later, you know, they were teenagers, but I want to go, I want to fast forward a little bit, Andrea, to when, you know, you get to the French open in 82, you play Chris Everett, you know, the greatest clay court player of all time. And she was obviously towards the tail end of her career. You beat her three and one in the semifinals of the French open before you then went on to lose to a Martina uh, in the final. So what, what was going through your mind as this was starting to happen at the highest level? Well, in pro tennis, to me, I practiced so hard. Like my practice were really, really, um, I challenged myself immensely there. And so my matches a lot of times became easy. Um, when I played Chris, I had beaten Chris on clay. I think previous to that at Hilton Head, it was on clay and, and there were some people, you know, there was some talk that was like, oh, yeah, that won't happen again. Nobody beats Chris because I had already stopped her clay court streak. And so I heard that, and I'm like, well, what do you mean? And so when I went out there to play her at the French Open, I really wanted to make sure that people knew, hey, look, this, you know, I beat her once. It, or I beat her once inside on carpet in Oakland, then again on clay in Hillhead, mm-hmm. and then this was the third time. And I said, look, this is, 
this person can be beaten just because she had a clay court streak doesn't mean she can't be beaten. And so when I played her, I remember the match being so easy that I thought afterwards, gosh, I better go back out and practice because it was a very easy match. And I ended up going out um, afterwards and practicing with someone um, just because. After the match. It, it was, yeah, it, <laughs> after the match. Uh, Kathleen Horvath was out there and I said, hey, you want to hit some? And she said, yeah, let's go. Do you have to play? Didn't you play? And I said, yeah, but, you know, I feel like that was kind of like a warm up. <laughs> and, and you know, you don't go into press conferences and say these things because you're respectful. I mean, right. my era, my era made women's tennis. Billie Jean King, Martina, Chris Everett, Tracy Austin. I mean, these were the pioneers who who got the game to where it is today. Um, but yeah, Chris, you know, when I beat her the first time, it was, you know, I was pretty excited about it. But it was, it, to me... It was more of a challenge to go, I, I should be able to beat everyone on the circuit. I know I can. And, and that was an internal goal of mine is to make sure that anyone that was on the circuit, I should be able to, to be able to beat because I practiced really hard. And, and I always was able to achieve that, which I was glad about. Well, you beat another all-time great, Billie Jean King, which actually was her last match she ever played, uh, or the singles match she ever played at Wimbledon, one and one. Uh, in the semis again you lost to Martina in the final at Wimbledon there so you get to um, you know as not as you said high as number two in the world you were knocking on the door to be number one how did things change as far as the pressure that you felt and what you were dealing with your relationship with your dad obviously got you know heated at times so how did that all evolve as you got to you know in your late teens which is you know, your career ended at 19. So, and what was changing as far as your outlook on dealing with this? Well, I think um, mostly it was just when, even though physically I was able to handle the circuit and emotionally the pressure, I never got nervous. I never got tired and I never got hot. So basically I already had advantages over every opponent I would ever play because I could run everything down. I would never get tired. I wouldn't get hot if it was a hot day. And, you know, so I had all these great advantages. The part that I didn't have, and, and perhaps maybe now it's a gift to possibly not have had that, but I didn't really have the, the ability to understand the, the dynamics that went into women's tennis. And mm-hmm. I think men's tennis um, had an advantage because there was, you guys had individual sports for so long. And so men's tennis, and I saw this, you know, McEnroe and Connor could be at, at their throats on a match or any of the other players. But afterwards, they were normal people. Mm-hmm. Like, they left the tennis court, and they were a normal person. And that, to me, I didn't see on the women's tennis circuit. So mm-hmm. I thought I was going to graduate from junior tennis. We're having, you know, a lot of fun, doing great, um, not making tennis the end all or breath of everything you do, into pro tennis, where it's like, okay, this is just a different level. It's just making money. That's all the difference mm-hmm. is, is you get to keep the money. My parents can now afford for me to travel, or they can go with me. But it wasn't like that. There was just an, a, a different um, element that I, that I think contradicted the personality I wanted to keep. Um, I just thought some people sold their soul to become number one. And I remember distinctly when I was number two in the world at 16 saying, I don't really want to be number one. If I have to be like that person, I mm-hmm. don't want to be that, that person. And so it it's just, you know, every person has a different competitive nature in their personality type, and mine would only go to a certain level. It's and not, it, because I didn't have any markers to go, 
oh, you still can be great like this and still hold your personality. I didn't really see that marker for me to follow. It almost sounds like you were playing, you were competing with yourself. I mean, just in hearing you tell your stories of how you grew up and, you know, how you got into it and playing tournaments. And it's almost like your dad reinforced that for you. It was like playing against yourself. So when you... Absolutely, I, yeah. And when you got to that point where you're like, you know, I've kind of done it. I don't, you know, you wanted to move on in your life. I know you had some shoulder injuries, which were, which were I think, part of what, what caused you to retire early. But wasn't it more about what you wanted to do with your life and, then, and, and, the, and what you've done in the last, you know, 30 years has been just amazing since, since you, over 30 years with your foundation and just helping kids with cancer and, you know, all the things you've done. So w- was that something that was in the forefront of your mind at such a young age that you wanted to do that with your life? I think so. I mean, there's, there's an advantage if you are ignorant to a bigger picture. And there's, a, there's also a disadvantage if you're ignorant to the bigger picture. And for me, um, my dad and I, you know, he, uh, he was an awesome father. He really was an awesome father. He was an awesome coach because he, he had an eye for coaching that was still unique to anyone. I'm, he could tell me hit three balls to someone's forehand and one to their backhand and they'll miss their backhand. I would do it and it would happen. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a man who could eye anything in professional sports. He's like extraordinary in his coaching ability, but we never had that father daughter relationship mm-hmm. after I turned pro. Mm-hmm. It just, he, he clicked into a different dial mm-hmm. and, and probably I did as well. And then, you know, we had, there was definitely issues. We had, um, you know, I remember when I went out to play on the court and the, you know, the, the Wimbledon, they, they hand you these towels before you go out. Right. And, and the person said, you know, um, here, Miss Yeager, here's your towel. And here, Miss King. And so when they handed Billie Jean their towel, because they're in the city play with and they said, here, Miss King, here's your towel. And it was for the semis when we were playing each other. And she looked at the towel attendant in the locker room and said, I won't need a towel. I'm not going to sweat in this match. <laughs> and I just like, <laughs> I, wow. like okay. I, I sat there and inside I thought, okay, you know what? I grew up with these people being legends in the sport and this is just her way of trying to psych me out. Mm-hmm. But that's not cool. Like to me, it wasn't cool. To anyone in sports, it'd be like, hey, way to go, Billy. That's a competitive edge you need to win. And I walked out on the court and I said, you know what? That's not how, if she would have told me, if I would have known ahead of time that was her last match in Wimbledon, I probably would have given her the match because it's like she's done so much for tennis. I don't deserve to go to the next round. Mm-hmm. She does she's done that much for tennis but when she said that and I didn't obviously know her last night I thought you know what you don't do that that's not how you win a match and and so I went out there and I purposely said to myself I'm going to win this match but I'm going to win it in a way that maybe she'll know you just don't do that and mm. so I won that match 6-1-6-1 and I again I competed against myself and said Get every single ball. I don't care if you have to dive. I don't care if your knees are bloody. You get every single ball back, and you win this match like you know how you can win this match. And I said that to myself, and I had never done that in a in a match before like that. And and that was important to me to walk off the court to know, okay, you can't win like that. But then there's other people that I did the opposite with. And so the dynamics and the psychology of mm. my mental capacity to handle things was just uniquely different and I think um you know probably the reason why I I transitioned so easily to another career after pro tennis because many athletes have difficulty is because I knew this just wasn't really my 
errant. It wasn't my place anymore. God gave me this gift for this long. I love tennis. I love tennis to this day. But, um, you know, and, and when I was injured, it, you know, the whole thing was just a very strange circumstance where, you know, I was called to, um, from the, a member, a very high member of the, the Boche and the number one player in the world. And they, they called me in the locker room at the championships in, in New York. And, and they had heard I was helping kids who were really struggling. And, and this happened to be in White Plains to commit suicide. And there was cluster suicide. And I read about it during the tournament in White Plains, New York. They had these problems with these, and these kids, it was just such a tragedy. And I had a day off. And between my matches, I'm like, okay, no big deal. I'm going to go help these kids because, my mm-hmm. gosh, I'm not playing a match today. And I didn't tell anyone. And my whole, like, when you asked about when I'm to another career, I always had interest and appreciation that whenever we went to other countries, those countries are hosting us. Those countries are funding our prize money. Those countries are allowing us to come and perform and they're paying us to do it. So for me, every city I tried to go to, I tried to give back some way. And I just never told people because I, you know, I just didn't. And at that particular time when I helped the school, it got printed in a newspaper because one of the kids' parents saw it. And they said, wasn't this great, you know, kind of sensation in Jaeger. She could be buying clothes on Fifth Avenue, and instead she's helping our kids. Mm. And, um, and that was strange because it set the tone for my whole professional career, which I, at the time I didn't know. But those two people, they saw that article, and they thought it made them look bad. And so they called me in this hotel room and, you know, said, you have to quit doing this. And I thought, you know, I didn't know what they were talking about. I thought it was maybe because I questioned line calls a lot. I wasn't quite like you know, some other people, but we <laughs> right. didn't have Hawkeye, you know? We didn't right, have right, Hawkeye. Right. So I just basically said, well, what do you mean? And they, they threw the newspaper at me, and there was my picture and that quote, and they said, you're making us look bad. You have to stop doing this. And I said, you know, I was a teenager still, and I said, I don't think you understand. These kids were committing suicide. I, I went to help them. I, it was on mm-hmm. my day off from matches. And they said, it doesn't matter. You're making us look bad. And I said, look, I've asked before for the tour to have a charity program. They don't want to have one. This is on my own time. Mm-hmm. And I said, if you don't want to do this for the heart, how about business? This is, these are communities that care about tennis and care about us. And they're giving the sponsors. And they said, nope, you either have to play pro tennis with not helping any of these kids or anyone again, or you just quit pro tennis and go help these kids. Wow. And that was in... Yeah, it was interesting because that was in March of 1984. And that our championships was at that time, and mm-hmm. and then a couple months, I left that room after arguing, obviously a little while and getting nowhere, and left that room and said to God, "Okay, you decide." I just signed millions of dollars of contracts. My mm-hmm. commercial, one of my commercials ran during um, the, like the Oscars. I just did a commercial with Bjorn Borg. I mean, there's like I love traveling. I love the parts of tennis where you're on a tennis court and the hotels and, and all that, but the, the atmosphere, you know, there's every, every industry has an atmosphere sometimes that you're kind of like, Oh, you know, maybe that's not exactly like me, but it was no big deal. It was like, I'm going to get through this because I love this game. Mm-hmm. And now all of a sudden I had this choice. So I just gave it to God and said, okay, you decide if you want me to play pro tennis, then I'll do that. If you want me to help kids, I'll go do that. But you have to decide because I have contracts. And mm-hmm. I signed to play tennis. And I went to the elevator, pressed the elevator button, and then continued my life. And a couple months later, was 5-0 up in the first set at the French Open Center Court, and my shoulder popped. Wow. And I knew at that moment, 
God decided I'm supposed to help you now full time. But it wasn't, you know, there's just so many, hindsight's such a wonderful thing where you can look back and go, oh, that was just meant to be. But would I rather play pro tennis and help kids my whole career and play, you know, 20, 30 mm-hmm. years? Of course. So do you ever look you know, back do you, ever, do you ever look back and say, I, I kind of wish it had been a little, you know, you obviously you were 19. You could have recovered from your shoulder injury. You could have come back a year or so later and, and maybe figured out how to manage all that. Because it sounds like, A, you didn't want to deal with the, the idea that you were going to be uh, win at all costs type person. That's number one. Right. right? Like, and yeah. the other part of it was like, I don't want to deal with like the politics of being a great player, being at the top of the game. Cause that obviously comes with the responsibilities and, and trying to navigate that. So do you ever look back and say, you know, maybe I could have, or were you, are you just like, it was, I did it. It was great. And then I moved on to do what my real calling, which, which was helping people. Well, I, I, I come from the mindset where it's, and I think probably, from professional sports, if you don't have a great day, you're going to have another great day the next day. We're not, you know, although tennis is in the Olympics, we're not Olympians where if your one moment doesn't happen at the Olympics, you know, your life is shattered for another four years. Professional tennis, you have a tournament the next week. Mm -hmm. So you can always, I I just think the politics at that time as a teenager, I just felt like I was compromising my soul. If I was Mm -hmm. always going to follow the norm, I just, you know, now it would be absurd to think that an industry or a community wouldn't have a charity program. It's just you would never think that in, in, in any type of sports or industry. It's complimented. It's, it's encouraged. It's inspired. But times were different back then. And the industry was different back then. And I respect that there's rules. And if that rule is specific for me, then that's specific for me. I mean, I, I'm kind of the type where if someone lays down the law, that's the law. You respect it. And until you can change it when the proper cycles, then you have to follow it. That's just what, you know, you know, that's just respect of your elders, I guess. All right. Um, so so let, 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 let's talk about um, what you, what you've done since. Cause obviously, I mean, it's, the list is so long. You go back to college, you get a degree in theology, you start the silver lining foundation. The other was the original name. Now it's called the little stars foundation that you've been running for so many years, which helps so many kids. You wrote a book called First Service back in 2004 where you talk about your life and your decisions to, um, you know, to do what you've done. What, what, what have, and you, you also became an Anglican Dominican nun, by the way, at one point, right? So what, what, what have you been the most proud of and what, do you, what continues to drive Andrea Yeager every day? I, probably the same thing as when I, I was little is that, um, you know, how can I contribute to make, like the world a better place, you know, how can I serve in my best capacity with what I have? And so um, I, you know, for, I'm on my 36th year of improving the quality of life um, and providing long-term care for children with cancer and children in need. So that um, I was told all those decades ago that one of the hardest industries to go in through, into is pediatric oncology because it's, there's so much suffering. A lot of the doctors and nurses even move on to research because it's really hard. Mm-hmm. But I just thought, you know what? I, I grew up with having a very um, a, a tremendous amount of tenacity and determination, and maybe I'm called to this. And so I, I, I think um, when you can change someone's life for the better, especially children, I mean, I'm obviously geared a lot towards vulnerable population groups and helping them, whether, you know, I mean, I'm known for my children's cancer work but you know anyone that could use um a lift in life to 
to get, you know, have a fuller life and a better life. I'm certainly all for, but I think, um, you know, every day, I mean, certainly what we've seen in the last year with what's gone on with COVID and mm-hmm. pandemic and how people have been hurting. It's like, you know, what everyone has a different calling, you know, mine, I, I believe is to help, you know, help others. And I've, I've done that and been able to make a difference to millions of kids. It's not, it's not an easy field. It's, it's not a, you know, I, I often think it was easier to get to the finals of Wimbledon or to beat Chris <laughs> or Martina or Billy Jane than, right. than doing what, what happens here daily. And, um, and that's, you know, that's just something that I've worked really hard for. I've tried to get as educated as possible in it and, and make a difference and, and try to give the kids, I didn't necessarily, I wasn't looking for a peer group on the professional tennis circuit. It would have been mm-hmm. awesome to have one, but it's an individual sport. It wasn't their responsibility to give me one. It was whether I sit there or not. And, and what I do is I give these families and these children an opportunity to have the best support possible, given they're going through, um, you know, horrible traumatic suffering times and years. I mean, we, it's just, you know, there's just, there's no, there's no way to describe what some of these families are going through. I, I ran into your mom once at a, in New York in a, in outside of a hotel, a hotel lobby. And, and she came up to me and, and the first thing I said was, Oh my God, John, you know, your son was the first person to ever donate to my foundation. Mm-hmm. I thank you so much. I wouldn't have gotten this far. And, and she said to me, you know, you're the one to be saying, I couldn't do what you do. And most people can't, it's too much suffering that we see. And, um, you know, and she was so sincere and genuine and, and that's, I think, you know, everyone has a role, whether to be out there playing tennis, so audiences can hear and have a better day for that, or, or like, you know, what you're doing, you're doing a podcast, give people an opportunity to listen to whatever's going to inspire something in them, or just to get them through the day. Well, you know, t- entertain. Well, well, yeah, entertain, but also ho- hopefully educate a little bit as well. And, and having you on definitely does that. So where can people go? I know you sent, I got your email from the Little Star Foundation. Where can people go to help you and your program and, and most importantly, help these kids to, to make a donation? Oh, uh, whatever. Um, if they want to learn what we're doing and help out, they can go to www.littlestar.org and um, see us at, on our website and see what we're doing. We've been helping in um, 38 states here in the U.S. and worldwide, and every single one of our programs is always for free for these families. So we've been we've been doing a lot, and just and and one other thing, I remember I ran into you. I had stayed away from tennis for a long time, and I ran into you once, and you said, "Why aren't you playing the legends?" And I said, ah, "You know, I kind of think you know I'm just not." <laughs> and you <laughs> called, and you said to me, "It's it's Wimbledon. It's the legends are one of the coolest things you'll ever do. It's just it's." They really they care about the players. You should look into it. And I um, so the next year I did, and Wimbledon invited me over, and they said, "Oh yeah, absolutely. If you're interested, come on over." And I went and played, and it was it was it was almost like having a rebirth in my professional tennis career in a sense of this is how it was supposed to be, mm. and it was it was amazing. I mean, I in one day I practiced next to Federer. He came over and said hello. Um, I, Rafa was up on top and he stopped to say hello. Um, your brother was doing, uh, some commentary and he signed some stuff for us to give to the kids too. And, and it was just like, it, it, I, I watched and I went, okay, so this, this is, this is a, like a community and a family that once you're in, you're always part of something. And, um, so yeah, I ended up getting back on the course because you mentioned, 
no, come on. It's really cool. And I'm like, are you sure? Do I have to go back in the <laughs> Well, you know and what? It you, was, it yeah, was really cool. No one will give you any comments about uh, that they won't need the towel, you know. But, uh, you, <laughs> listen, you, you are a true inspiration to, you know, those of us like myself who, you know, d- decided – to have my entire career in tennis. I've been very lucky to be able to do that. But, um, you know, the reason why Nadal and Federer and those people came over to you is because you inspired, you know, us. And you inspired, you know, to, for us to be in, involved in tennis and know that you're involved in tennis because you've done more than, than all these people put together to help the world. And obviously, the, you know, people like Andre Agassi has, has supported you as well. And my brother has always talked about you and has always looked out for you and for what you've done. So uh, we thank I you. Know, do you know he called, he, he called Nike, he called, he went up to every person one year at Wimbledon. I, I asked him if I could be his assistant at the French in Wimbledon because then I could get my expenses paid. And I said, look, I'll work from 5 a.m. to 10 p.m., but then I can help people. Players will learn about what I'm doing. Maybe they'll help. And so he invited me to come over and he went up to every single person and said, that's how Andre knew about us and Sanford and, and said, look, will you help her? You've got to do something to help her. And, and that, you know, there's my, my professional tennis career had some adventures for absolutely as everyone does, but the goodness from the genuine heart of people like for John McEnroe, for me to be able to walk up to John McEnroe and have him say hello and give me a hug and you, and you know, that's, that's because there was pioneers before, you know, I even, I went to Billy Jean after and I said, you know, that was so cool. The locker room. And she goes, Oh my God, I did that. She goes, we were all crazy <laughs> back then. <laughs> right. All right, right. She didn't and even I, remember. I, yeah. Yeah. And it's just, that is something that I think, People who come to any sport or any life, if, if there's one thing I can share is that you leave a path and, and hopefully people can light up that path to inspire others to do greatness because that, that's what I've seen. I mean, I used mm. to, you know, I, I hung out and was able to partner up with some of the, the greatest players of all time. They happened to be on the, the men's professional tennis circuit, but I would have never gotten there if I wasn't a woman's professional tennis player. And, and that's, um, you know, to this day. And, and then after that, I mean, it's just, it's been really, it, it, you know, I, I just, if someone said, could you, ch- if you could change one thing? Yeah, absolutely. I would have loved to keep playing and, and had been able to run my a foundation and help kids while I play professional tennis and not have an injury. But if the second place was the life I had, boy, that, that's pretty extraordinary. I'd, I'd, I'd say so. I'd say it's first place. And uh, we, <laughs> we, we owe you a debt of gratitude. And uh, by the way, you know, we can hit balls anytime. So hopefully when this COVID thing passes, <laughs> we'll get, we'll get, uh, we'll, we'll hook up and we'll, uh, we'll maybe we'll even find some of those t-shirts that we sold. To, I was trying to. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. The Unbelievable. <laughs> Unbelievable. Well, thank you, Andrea, for, for doing this and for giving me so much time. This has been amazing. And, uh, Keep um, keep doing what you're doing because it is remarkable. All right. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me on. You got it. Take care. Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe is powered by Mudhouse Media.